The text for this morning's sermon is 1 Samuel 27, if you want to turn there. 1 Samuel 27, verses 1 through 12. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maoch, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your, in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive. But he would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and would come back to Achish. When Achish asked, Where have you made a raid today? David would say, Against the Negeb of Judah, or against the Negeb of the Jaharmelites, or against the Negeb of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, Lest they should tell about us, and say, So David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, He has made himself an utter stench to his people, Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. First verses of verse chapter 28 read, In, in those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what you, your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Let's pray. Uh, <clears throat> Father, now I just ask that uh, your spirit would help me as we consider this episode in David's life. Lord, I pray you would give us wisdom that uh, doesn't come from me, but would come from truth in your word. Lord, I pray that you would apply your word to our hearts in only the way you can through the power of your spirit, as we know that your word is making us more and more into the image of Christ. Father, for those who are here that do not yet know you in a saving way, Lord, I pray your word might bring them to a point of desperation to see their need of Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the actions we all do are always driven by our thoughts, by what we think in our mind. If you think about what might be one of the most difficult things you'll ever do on the face of the earth, I think maybe the number one suggestion would be dying. How hard is it to die or to die well? You know, we could die suddenly and we could say, well, that's easy. You know, we didn't even have time to think about it. But so many people die slowly and they have time to think. 
And there's different ways that people die. There's different pain that people go through. There's different battles in their minds. But one of the most amazing testimonies, testimony of God's power, I think, is the way Christians throughout history have died. Uh, we all love to hear about people's last words. If you only have a few words left, what will they be? What might you say? Well, uh, let me share a few of them with you. First, some Christians, and then some of those who uh, have not... Uh, trusted in Christ, Dwight Moody awoke from sleep shortly before he died. And here's what he said. Earth recedes. Heaven opens up for me. If this is death, it is sweet. There's no valley here. God is calling me and I must go. Augustus Toplady says this, he's a preacher of uh, and author of the hymn Rock of Ages. He said, the consolations of God to such an unworthy wretch are so abundant that he leaves me nothing to pray for but a continuance of them. I enjoy heaven already in my soul. Lady Glencurry when she was dying, said, if this is dying, it is a pl the most pleasant thing imaginable. John Pawson, a minister, said, I know I am dying, but my deathbed is a bed of roses. I have no thorns planted upon my dying pillow. In Christ, heaven has already begun. Adoniram Judson, a uh, Baptist missionary to Burma, on his deathbed said, I go with the gladness of a boy bounding away from school. I feel so strong in Christ. Now there's a picture I can relate to there. <laughs> the last day of school going home. He's describing his joy in death. John Lith on his deathbed said, Can this be death? Why? It is better than living. Tell them I die happy in Jesus. Mary Frances said, Oh, that I could tell you what joy I possess. The Lord does shine with such power upon my soul. She knew her words could not transfer the joy in her heart. Sir David Brewster, a scientist and inventor of the kaleidoscope, said this, I will see Jesus. I shall see Him as He is. I've had the light for many years. Oh, how bright it is. I feel safe and satisfied. A Muslim woman whose child died at the age of 16 years of age, asked a Christian missionary, what did you do to our daughter? The missionary replied, we did nothing. But the mother persisted, oh yes you did. She died smiling. Our people do not die like that. As it turned out, the girl had found Christ and believed on Him only a few months before her death. The fear of death had gone and hope and joy had taken its place. A Chinese communist, through many Christians uh, that they had executed, said to a pastor, I've seen many of you die. The Christians die in a different way. What's your secret? Now I read all that not to downplay the difficulty of dying. In fact, these people probably were suffering greatly. 
but rather to show when a person is trusting in Christ by faith, there's actual power at the most difficult point in time in your life. Let me read a few last words of those who died apart from Christ. Thomas Paine, a famous deist and mocker of the Christian faith, on his deathbed said, I would give worlds if I had them. I would if the age of reason had never been published. He published a work mocking Christianity and holding up natural reason. And he said, if I had universes, I would give them all that I would have never published those works. And then he said, uh, Oh Lord, help me. Christ, help me. Stay with me. It is hell to be left alone. Voltaire, who you're probably famously aware of, uh, was a talented French writer who once said of Jesus, curse that wretch. He stated every sensible man, every honorable man must hold the Christian sect in horror. Christianity is the most ridiculous, the most absurd and bloody religion that has ever infected the world. He also boasted, in 20 years, Christianity will be no more. My single hand shall destroy the edifice it took 12 apostles to rear. Some years later, Voltaire's house was used by the Geneva Bible Society to print Bibles. Ironically, the Christian church stuck around. These were Voltaire's last words. I am abandoned by God and man. I shall go to hell, O Jesus Christ. David Hume, the atheist, died in utter despair with an awful scene crying out, I am in the flames. The very hell he didn't believe existed. Karl Marx was on his deathbed surrounded by candles burning to Lucifer and screamed at his nurse who asked him if he had any last words, go on and get out. Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. And he died an angry man. Nietzsche died completely insane and out of his mind. Sir Thomas Scott said, until now, I thought there was no God or hell. Now I know there is both and I am doomed. Sir Francis Newport said, Do not tell me there is no God, for I know there is one, and that I am in His angry presence. You need not tell me there is no hell, for I already feel my soul slipping into its flames. I know that I am lost forever. The last words of people dying tell us something about what they spent their life thinking about, what they spent their life hoping in. As we look at this text today, we see David on a disappointing day. The last nine chapters, we've been amazed at David's perseverance as he's been on the run from Saul who's been trying to kill him. Uh, we could not hardly imagine enduring as long as he's endured. God has protected him in, through his providence in ways that could only be uh, described as supernatural working of God. You know, when you see the title, title, Disappointing David, you either know, you're probably thinking, well, this is a sermon on Bathsheba. Well, that was a low point in David's life. But that low point came when everything was going so good. 
And the same thing can happen for us as things are going so good we don't realize we can actually be walking away from the living God. And also, when we're just so worn down and we're so tired and we don't want to go forward anymore, we can slip into moments of faithlessness and begin to rely on our own strength as we feel like it's just too much to endure. That's the text that uh, we have before us that Scott read. Uh, let's just remember the story. David and his family, 600 men, are the, those involved with David, his, both of his wives. And after God had just protected David and delivered him, and he has all these promises that his kingdom is going to last. David feels like there's only one hope for me. I need to go into Philistine territory and seek refuge from Saul. So he flees to Gath. Achish is there, the king. And uh, this is the second time David has come to Achish. This time, the Philistines have heard that David is a rebel running away from Saul. This time, Achish sees David as like a mercenary. All right. He says, Saul's my enemy. This is what Achish says. David obviously has Saul as his enemy. I'm going to invite him and his men to live here with me. And David thought, if I do this, Saul will quit looking for me. It happened. We're told in our text that Saul quit seeking out David. We know that David lived there for a year and four months. And when he was there, he would go up and make raids against the Gershites, the Gerzites, the Malachites. Uh, for these were inhabitants of the land of old. Uh, these were Israel's enemies. In a sense, David's protecting Israel as he's going and destroying uh, these raiders. Uh, he's robbing the robbers, in a sense, and uh, killing both man and woman and taking all their goods. He makes sure that he kills all of them because he doesn't want word to get back to Achish that he is doing this. Uh, after he began living in Gath, David said to Achish, don't let me be a burden for you here. Let me go somewhere away from you so I'm not a burden. Give me some town out in the country. And so uh, uh, Saul, or not Saul, Achish gave David Ziklag. I don't know if, do we have the map on the slideshow? I'll just show you where this is so you can picture it. Uh, so Ziklag is somewhere either here or here. The Philistines are along the Mediterranean Sea. And in our text it says, David made raids uh, through the land of Shur all the way to Egypt over here. So here's Israel up over here. David's here. Up there in Gath is where Achish is. And so he's got considerable distance away uh from Achish, and he's making these raids, and he's bringing back plunder and giving it to the king of the Philistines, to, to Achish. And Achish says, where, where are you getting these goods? And David says, well, I'm making raids against Judah, these towns of Israel. And Achish says, oh good, Israel has to be hating David. He's got to be making himself a stench to Israel. And uh, David obviously has him fooled. In those first verses of chapter 28, David's in this predicament because now Achish is ready to attack Saul and he tells David, hey, come on, let's go attack Saul. So this is our text. What can we get from this? I want to give you four things. First, the first thing is talk truth to yourself. Look at verse 1 of chapter 27. Here's what he says. He says, uh, 
Then David said in his heart. So David is talking to himself. Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel. I shall escape out of his hand. Now, this is shocking because we have nine chapters of, okay, David's faith. David's faith. He's trusting God in these circumstances. We can't imagine. This is like the 13th time his life is in jeopardy in these nine chapters. And then all of a sudden, David says, now I shall perish. Right back in the chapter previous, in, in verse 10, 1 Samuel 26.10, David said, as long as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. You know, he's telling his companion, don't kill Saul, though he's laying there. Yes, his spear's there. Yes, you can strike him through. He says, don't, don't strike him. His day will come. He will go down into battle and perish. His faith is so strong. That word perish is what he says. Now I'm surely going to perish. So suddenly, he seems to have lost all hope. And I find this encouraging. Finally, I can begin to relate to David where I can be so strong in one moment and then in the next moment, I can seemingly lose all hope. I think all of us can relate to this. I mean, if I just go back the last four chapters, here's what seems surprising about it. Chapter 23, Saul was about to capture him. Lo and behold, a messenger comes and says, Hey, Saul, the Philistines are raiding Israel. He has to turn around and run. Chapter 24, Saul's delivered into David's hand in a cave. God's obviously showing, David, I'm, I'm with you here. I'm providentially bringing these events about. In chapter 25, we see Abigail keeping him from killing Nabal. And then she gives him this promise. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. So God has this bundle that He protects the living. David, you're in that hand. Don't fear. You don't have to go out and fight the way the world does. You're in the Lord's bundle. And then like I just said in this last chapter, the Lord delivers Saul again over to him. But now David is saying, there's no hope. I'm going to perish. Now think of this. He's saying it in his mind. Saul is not going to quit seeking me. Surely he's going to kill me. Surely he's going to kill me. Surely he's going to kill me. So then what does he do? He acts. He does something. He goes to the Philistines to find refuge. Now, I do want to warn you, sympathize with David here. The text does. The text let us, lets us feel the weight of what he's been going through. This isn't the place where we stand up and say, how, how dare you do something like this? And yet we are struck in that first verse that he says, where's my, you know, this is my only hope. This is my last chance. There's no mention of God in this chapter from David, the psalm writer. But my charge to you that we can learn is talk truth to yourself. The Bible talks about talking to ourselves in many different places. In Luke 12.19, you have the man who wants bigger barns and then, and then he'll have security in life. Luke 12. 19, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. See, we talk to our soul. We give our soul propaganda to think about. The person who talks to you most is yourself. And by the way, you're the most convincing out of anyone. You're talking to yourself 
all the time. You're speaking to your soul. Psalm 62 is an example. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is in Him. Soul, find your hope in God. Psalm 42.11, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall praise Him, my salvation, and my God. This idea of talking to your soul we see in Scripture. Here's what Ralph Dale Davis said. He said, David was talking to himself, and what he kept saying to himself determined his action. What you say and keep saying to the center of you will direct your way. All of us propagandize our soul. That is, we constantly talk to ourselves. Not many of you do this audibly, but we continually do it. And if you don't believe it, or and if you don't believe it, you haven't been listening, and yourself is probably angry with you for being so unreceptive. How crucial it is to feed our soul's true propaganda, especially about our adequate about the adequacy of our God. And so this is the drive of this point. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I want to show you this in Proverbs four. Proverbs 4 is this uh, letter from a father to a son, and he's he's pleading with his son to keep wisdom, to keep God's Word with him. And I just want to highlight a few verses here. Uh, Most people have heard verse 23 before, Proverbs 4.23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. So, with all your energy, keep your heart. Protect your heart. Okay, so picture your heart. With everything you have, put an army around it. Why? Because everything in your life flows out of your heart. David spoke to his heart, surely they're going to kill me. It affected his actions. How you speak to your heart matters. In Proverbs 4, he's saying guard your heart with all vigilance. Out of your heart comes your life. So that's the culmination of this proverb, but let me let me show you how he says it in different words. Look at verse 4. And he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast to my words. Keep my commandments and live. So if you want life, Keep my words. This is so what it means to guard your heart is to keep God's words around you, talking. Talk God's words to your heart. Be around people that speak truth into your life because what you say to your heart's gonna affect what you do and how you live and how you die. And then verse 5, get wisdom and insight. Do not forget. Do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. And then in verse 13, keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her for she is your life. So I can't emphasize this emphasize this enough, the way you live your life is by faith according to God's Word. And God's Word holds up for us Jesus Christ. And what it means to guard your heart with all vigilance because all your actions are going to flow out is to be seeing and hearing truth of God's Word and believing it by faith. And that will affect your actions. That's how our life works. Your whole life flows out of the center of your being, which the Bible describes as your heart. And if you're a worrier like me, that I struggle with worry, you know, we can think of a scenario. I was just talking to someone yesterday, and they said, you know, it can happen so fast. I had my little daughter. 
And in a moment, I can imagine the worst possible scenario playing out. And so I grab my child and I walk inside. So you can't play in the yard anymore when you start speaking lies into your mind. It affects even where you play with your children. Speak truth to yourself. Let me, if you will, turn with me to Philippians 4. I just want to show you this in the New Testament a way that I think is just neat how this same principle just weaves right into Paul's thinking. Philippians 4, starting in verse 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Is there anything more ridiculous than that statement to the world? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And then, but look at what he says, verse 5. Let your reasonableness be made known to everybody. Not only does Paul not think it's ridiculous, he says the only thing that's actually sane is that we would rejoice in the good times and the bad times. Always. That's the only thing that's sane. And here's why the Lord is at hand. That's why it's not insane. At this point in time in David's life, has the Lord deserted him? The Lord hasn't deserted David. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, what does it say? Will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Remember, God is here. Pray with thanksgiving. Come to the Lord. Every request. Don't be anxious. Don't play out every worst case scenario. Pray. God's here. He wants to listen. Bring your requests and all of a sudden your heart is going to have guarding around it. And a peace can set in. that the, These people are dying. And they're saying things the world cannot comprehend. It's because there actually is power in God's Word to change our actions and to change our lives and to strengthen a person, to put a smile on a formerly Muslim little girl's face as she dies so prematurely at the age of 16. That's amazing. You know, I used to think of it like this. Okay, I gotta have promises because I gotta fight worry. Worry's bad. I don't like worry. It makes me anxious. And so I gotta have promises so I beat this here. Well, the goal is not just not to worry. The reason why I want to speak truth and preach the gospel to myself is not only will it help me not worry, but it'll change me. It'll change me into a pers different person that begins to look more like the image of God. There's actual power on that side of it. And so, point one, talk truth to yourself. Recognize when you're telling yourselves lies. Well, I almost forgot. The end of Philippians 4. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellent, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. You know, that's how your heart is guarded. Secondly, what I think we learn from this passage is we need to trust God with the means as well as the ends. You know, David knows that he's going to be king, or he ought to know. And he ought to know that God can take care of the means to bring that end about. Especially considering the last ten sermons that we've seen. God's proven this. You don't have to do it your way, David. I will make you king. 
I will protect you. You know, it's so easy for us to know the end of what God wants, and it's so hard for us to trust in the means of God that it would be brought about. My stopwatch keeps shutting off on me here, and that's bad news for you guys if I'm not watching that. <laughs> trust in God for the means. Uh, Deuteronomy. You, you know, you, you think about it. If someone asked, is this a successful chapter or not? I think a lot of people are going to say yes. They're going to say, look at this. David's plan worked. All the while, while he's deceiving Achish, his enemy, successfully, he's also protecting Israel of their enemies, and he's protecting his family, and he's fulfilling Deuteronomy 20, 16 through 17, fulfilling what Joshua couldn't do. You know, you can look at this and just say, it worked. But here's what I want to warn us of. Even though all that is true, we got to be careful that when our human plans and methods succeed, even for good, that they're not necessarily proof that God validates the means. In fact, they may only point to God's patience and love and grace for a person when they choose their own means. So here's what, here, here's what I'm saying. The temptation is to say, this end is good. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to be totally pragmatic and leave God out of this. David isn't consulting God in this text. And it works. And people say, therefore, what David did was right. No. What we see here is the grace of God that God let it work even though He should have let it destroy Him. You know, methods of evangelism. Yeah, we hear this all the time. But look at the result. I know, but God's glorified in the means of how a person's evangelized, not just in the end. God will work through all sorts of crazy things we do when the Gospel is present. But that doesn't validate the way we get things done. Now, I just want you to challenge your own heart. Most good Christians know the ends God wants. And it's really easy to say, I'm going to get there in any way possible. And just consider in your own heart how you may do what David's doing in this text and it becomes so natural that Here's, here's the scary thing about this one is you actually are building yourself up as God's so happy with me. Look at the results. Look, look at how good this is going all the while we can be doing it uh, in the strength of our own flesh. Um, Proverbs 3.5 Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding in all all your ways acknowledge Him and He'll make your path straight. You see? In all your ways, on the way to that good end, acknowledge Him. Um, let me give you a few examples from the New Testament. Uh, Colossians 3.18 Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives but it doesn't stop there. If that's all it said, a husband could say, God's Word says, submit to me. So, submit. I'm supposed to love you. How do I love you? I rule over you. But here's what the text says. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So not only does He call us to love, He tells us the way that love loves. The way it is. And I could give you so many examples. In, in a similar vein, 1 Peter 3.7, Likewise, husbands, 
Live with your wives in an understanding way. That's one of the most brilliant verses in the Bible. Because it covers so much. Are you loving your wife? Well, yeah, I'm loving my wife. Are you living with her in an understanding way? Well, what does that mean? (laughs) Define that. Well, that's the point. You know, love in Christ-like servanthood leadership is easy and kind to live with. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13. So, I hope you get the drift. The way matters as much as the end. Third, third thing we can learn from this text. Tally up God's provisions. You know, that's the thing that I think most clearly comes to mind is David. Just stop. You're good at this usually. Just in this moment, stop for a minute. I mean, we can do it. He's living it. He's tired. He's on the run. He's sick of living in the desert and in caves and sleeping on the sand. So it's easy for us. But for us, we're just kind of like, dude, look at your diary. The last nine chapters is absolutely amazing of God's provision for you. I'm going to tell you to do something that I don't haven't done very much, but I want to start doing it more. And that is to keep a journal so you can do exactly this. Laura does this a lot more than I do. And every now and then, once or twice a year, we'll just go back and read and be absolutely shocked at how God has provided. Ways we forgot how He's answered prayers that we so easily forget about. Tally up God's provisions for you. Speak those to yourself. The Bible's full of this. Um, Exodus 3.13, Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong arm, or by a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out from this place. Remember this day. Write it down. Deuteronomy 7.17, if you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I. How can I dis, dispossess them? So this is David's situation in, in a big sense. He's afraid. You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord God did to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand, the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God had brought you out. So the will are so will the Lord your God do to the people of whom you are afraid. Over and over again the Bible's telling us, remember, remember who I am, remember my provision for you. Uh, you can read on your own Psalm seventy seven. It's one of these Psalms that says, I'll remember the deeds of the Lord, and then the psalmist goes off recounting the greatness of God. Tally up God's provisions. And the last point in your notes is to look to the greater David. You know, we can't help but begin to start seeing David as this incredible hero over the last ten chapters. Just amazing faith. And then all of a sudden, our hero seems to fall on his face. All throughout the Scriptures, whether Abraham's your hero, whether Noah's your hero, Jacob, they all do this. All of them fall short. All of them leave us as Bible readers saying, really, God? This is your king? This Abraham's? going to be the father of many nations really they're all falling short they're all dis- disappointing us well here's the good news of the gospel is that finally when jesus christ came he is the king that perfectly talked god's truth to himself 
constantly. Jesus said, the words that I speak are the words of my Father. I came to do all that the Father has given me to do. His whole life is marked by living according to God's Word. He's the only man who perfectly, in every situation, the serpent comes to him when he's hungry, tempts him, and then he speaks God's Word back to the serpent. And not only is he speaking to the serpent, but he himself is in the midst of a temptation. And he's reminding himself of God's Word and His truth. He did what you and I don't do very well. He trusted in the means of what God gave gave him to do. Go save them. Well, he went through every step along the line to do that. Even to be hanging naked on a cross with the Father turning His face away from Him, Jesus earned our salvation by being obedient to God, not just to get to the end, but to fulfill all that God had done. In His high priestly prayer, I told them what You told me to tell them. I showed them your love, Father. He continually is laying out, I'm finishing the race. I've, I, I did, dotted every I, crossed every T, fulfilled the righteousness of God, even to the point of dying on the cross. He did what David didn't do and what you and I can't do. And Jesus often would tally what He knew was true from the past from the high priestly prayer, John 17.5. And now, Father, He's at the moment of the most scary moment of His life. He's about to die, not just at the hands of humans, but under the wrath of God Himself. And He says, Father, glorify Me in Your presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. He's thinking back And he's remembering before the world existed, my Father loved me. And even though I'm going to die right now, he, with 100% confident faith, he says, after I die, glorify me in your presence. I know where I'm going. He's speaking truth to himself by God's past faithfulness and glory that he shared with him in the past. So we need a king that's not just here to destroy our earthly enemies, for our greatest enemy is sin. Here's how we're finishing. David was a great king to Israel because he protected Israel from so many enemies, but our enemy is sin. We need a different type of king. The reason why sin is our worst enemy is because sin brings with it the wrath of God that hangs over every sinner's head. His righteousness and justice demands that He punish sin. So the fact that we're all sinners means that God's goodness, His justice and righteousness hangs like a cloud over every sinner And there's going to be a lightning bolt that strikes. There's a moment coming when justice is going to be exacted. And when you sin against an eternal God, that justice cannot be satisfied in a moment. There's only one thing that brings justice. One sin against an eternal God deserves eternal punishment in hell because the one with whom we sinned against is eternal. You get that? Someone says, well, why is hell forever? Because God is eternally glorious. And that's what justice demands. Every sinner has God's judgment hanging over his head. This is our great problem. Here's how John said it. John 3.36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see light, but the wrath of God remains on him. Romans 2, 4 and 5. Or do you presume upon the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You know, I preach the Gospel 
to a lot of unsaved people before. And they'll say to me, you mean to tell me there's a dark cloud hanging over my head? A lightning bolt hasn't struck yet. And Paul's saying, oh, that's just because of the kindness and patience of God. Don't presume upon that because then here's what he says, but because of your hardened and penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So we're told in the Bible there's a day coming when justice will be exacted. And our great enemy is sin because sin brings upon us the wrath of God. But Jesus Christ, in your place, God in His love has sent His Son who went to a cross and while he was on the cross, God put all that will believe in him, their sins, on that cross. And as Jesus is hanging there on the cross, God himself leaves Jesus, pulls his presence away, leaves him naked, rejected by man, and at that moment, rejected by God, as God pours out his wrath on Christ. That's why Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you might say, well, how can one man in one moment dying on the cross forgive the sins of all men who trust in Him in that moment? Why didn't it take eternity and eternal death in Christ? Well, here's the thing. The eternal God-man was hanging on the cross. Not anyone could die on that cross. Not a perfect, not just a perfect man needed to die. An eternal God man with eternal worth needed to pay our price. And when he died for your sins, justice is paid. So the good news is this. A king better than David came. He defeated your greatest enemy, which is sin. And by doing that, he removed the wrath of God. And he didn't just remove the wrath of God, but he gifted you Jesus' perfect life in your account. He gave you righteousness. And he adopts you into his very family. We could not have a greater king than the one God gave us. So let's remember God's provision for us. Let's not forget during the trials of life, God's love for us. If you'll trust in Christ, if you know you're a sinner and you say, my only hope is a perfect God-man dying in my place, if you believe that and trust in Christ by faith, God in power will come and change you from the inside out. He'll make you born again and your eyes will be open to love Him in a way you've never loved Him before. My prayer is that everyone here has trusted in Christ in that way. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Christ, the perfect King, who perfectly did what none of us can do and what David even could not do. Lord, I thank You that You remind us that David is human and sinful and like us. And that our great King is not Him, but it is a Son that came from Him, Jesus Christ our Lord. I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.